Good morning. Welcome to Tombow Bible Church. My name is Skeet. I'm the senior pastor. It's my joy today to open the scriptures with you to Nehemiah chapter 5 as we track through the book of Nehemiah this summer. I want to invite you to open your Bible there. We're going to be beginning in verse 14 here in a moment. Uh, so this morning, I don't have any props because I think some of our other teachers were getting prop envy. And uh, so I'm going to play it close to the vest this morning. Although, John, um, you could have used a 2 by 4 last Sunday and uh, gone Hacksaw Jim Duggan, which all the guys my age who grew up watching wrestling know exactly who that guy is. Um, but uh, I want to welcome you as we start and kind of run you through the book of Nehemiah very briefly so we catch up to speed here. Uh, Nehemiah was a Jewish man living in Susa working for the king. He... Uh, was a cupbearer to the king, which essentially meant that, that he tasted the king's food and wine prior to the king getting it, which sounds like a bit of a nominal task, but it's actually quite important. The cupbearer has the, must have the, the absolute trust of the king. So he, he's somewhere a mix between a household servant and, and a cabinet member. We don't really have that position in our current government. But he, he held a prominent role with close relationship to the king of Persia, who ruled at that time the largest empire in the world. And he receives word from his brothers that the city of Jerusalem lies in, in ruin. And that while it was destroyed over 130, 140 years ago, that it was still in ruin and that the people there were in disrepute and degraded among the nations. And so Nehemiah is just broken and burdened by seeing the effects of the sins of the people. Because the people of God were called to be this, this great nation, this light that would shine amidst the nations to draw men and women to the Lord, so that they would see what it is to walk faithfully with Him and be, as the Scripture says, a city on a hill. And they were far from that. And so Nehemiah wept and grieved and began to plead with God to change it. Not only to change the situation, but to allow Him to be a part of it. And so Nehemiah's life takes a complete turn towards one focus, the restoration of the city of Jerusalem and the people of God there in the city. He receives a permission from the king, not only permission, but resources to go and rebuild. So the king sends him with a military escort, provides for the lumber needed from his own forest to, to rebuild the city. As he gets there, uh, he surveys the, the situation, they begin the work, immediately they begin to face opposition. Nehemiah is an expert at overcoming it. He is a faithful and powerful leader walking with the Lord in this, and things go well. But then in Nehemiah chapter 5, the opposition begins to shift. See, prior to then, all the trouble they had 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 been with, with outsiders coming in and threatening and disparaging the workers. But what they have happening in Nehemiah 5, what we studied last week, is the workers and their own sin within the people destroying the unity and commitment of the workers. The situation arose where, where, where there was a famine in the area and those that were wealthy were, were taking advantage of that difficult time in order to increase their wealth by selling their own countrymen into slavery by taking their fields and reducing them to utter poverty, by charging high interest on them when the law of Moses had told them they weren't to charge interest on one another. And Nehemiah rebukes them and calls them to an oath before God and each other that they, that they will no longer indulge in these practices. And then Nehemiah, kind of after handling that whole situation, 
as he looks in retrospect at his time there as governor, gives us a little word today about the way in which he governed the people that's going to be quite important when you consider what they had gone through before. So if you'll open your Bibles to chapter 5, verse 14, we'll see Nehemiah's reflection on his time as governor there in Judah. He tells us this, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brother ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were here before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration of 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so. Because of fear of God, I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance." Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy upon this people. Remember me, remember remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. So Nehemiah looks back now on his 12 years as the governor. And it's important to point out, Nehemiah has not been in Jerusalem at this point of the story for 12 years. He writes this in retrospect and he says, look, by the way, For the whole time that I was there, the 12 years that I governed the city, I never never took the food allowance, I never acquired any land, I stayed focused on the work that I was there for. And so that's what Nehemiah tells us about himself. He gives us a few commitments that he had made and how he would lead the people and govern the area. First, he tells us that he opted out of the food allowance. See, the governor of an area had a right to claim certain amounts of food. It was a requirement of the job that they would entertain nobles, officials, and foreign dignitaries. And because it was a requirement of the job, there was a taxation method to fund that party. It was called a food allowance. Nehemiah, in a minute, will clue us in to what was required to feed that number of people. But he opted out of it. He chose not to levy that tax upon the people. So then the question is, well, if Nehemiah didn't tax the people... Where did the money come from? And he's going to tell us later that he pocketed, out of his own pocket, he paid for everything. Nehemiah tells us in verse 18 what would be required. And it's interesting if you go down the list of what he's saying the daily preparation was. So there was one cow, six sheep, some birds, we don't know how many. And there was wine. Uh, Every ten days they would buy a new supply. So when we... Being a farm kid, I'm going, okay, so we've got uh, some sheep and we've got some cows. And so immediately I'm going, if I go to the sale barn in Wharton on Tuesday with this in my trailer, how much money do I leave with? That's that's what I'm asking myself. And so I I, I go to uh, Livestock Weekly where they give us some really nice numbers about what things are selling for around here. So so here's the deal. If you were to take a full-grown steer in your trailer and drive it out to Belleville to the sale barn, let me... The rate you would expect would be about $1.25 a pound, <clears throat> live weight. 
Now, our cattle are bigger, so you could expect a steer here in Texas to be around 1,200 pounds, I think. That would be a reasonable number. But I've traveled a little bit, never to Jerusalem, but I've noticed that our cattle are larger than most. So, so I'm figuring, all right, the guy's, let's say he's got a cow that's about 750 pounds. He's a small one. All right, so, so if you run that number at about $1.20 a pound, you're looking at, at about 900 bucks. And then he's got six sheep, a ransom numbers there. You're looking at about $125, $140 per sheep. And at Walmart, you can get a chicken for about $450. And I'm thinking, if you barbecue less than 20 chickens with 150 people there, what's the point, right? So I start running the numbers here, and I figure cheap wine, right? Like $6 a bottle stuff. If you were to throw this party... In America today, you'd be shelling out about $2,500 a night to, show, to throw this party. And we haven't even touched tater tots yet. We haven't paid anybody to grill this thing. We, we haven't bought wood or charcoal. But we've just bought the, the animals and the wine. Now, think about that. Nightly, for 12 years, it shakes out to be somewhere in the ballpark of $10 million. So about $10 million over 12 years that Nehemiah could have claimed as a part of the food allowance, but chose not to. And if you want to throw an accelerating factor in there, is that they're in a time of a famine, which means food prices are escalating because there's a shortage. But in U.S. dollars today, about $10 million. In addition, he tells us there was a, a, a daily ration tax that he could have claimed, which was 40 shekels. Now, you start running the numbers and you find a shekel of silver is roughly worth about 30 bucks. So we're talking about $1,200. And scholars disagree on how to run this number. Is it, is it from the whole governor, from the whole area, the whole district that he can claim that much? Or is that per family, per year? In, in any event, either way you run, the, it's at least 6 to $7 million over the 12-year time period that he didn't tax the people when he could have. So Nehemiah now, is in the hole somewhere around 18 to 20 million. Because he's not taxed them, he's not demanded the food allowance, and he's continued to provide out of his own pocket. So that's the first thing. He opted out of the food allowance at, at great expense. The second, he tells us he focused on the work. He said, look, me and my servants, we didn't come here to do other things. We weren't investing in different areas. We came and we focused on the work that was in front of us. Nehemiah stuck clear to the vision that God had given him to rebuild the wall. He didn't jump onto other projects that were fine and good and dandy. He stuck solely to that thing with singular focus. Third, he tells us he acquired no land or wealth. And this is a bit of an important note about Nehemiah's leadership. Because when you read the story of how the Persian governors would, would make money and, and get wealth, it's quite interesting. Most of them were, in many cases, slaves. People who had served the king faithfully in his household that he trusted. They weren't freedmen. They didn't have family wealth or inheritance. And he would then place them as a governor over an area. And so... Now we've got to develop some wealth, right? We don't have any inheritance. Mom and dad aren't going to leave anything. But here's the opportunity of the governor as he is doing his job. So here's what the governor could do and oftentimes would. He would levy taxes on the people because you've got to send a slice up the hill to Artaxerxes and I might want to keep some for me. And so we're going to pad that number a little bit. And then if someone can't pay their taxes, you say, look, here's what we'll do. I'll float you for 90 days. As long as you put your land up for collateral. 
See that real nice vineyard you've got? Just put that up as security on the loan. And if you make it in 90 days, we're good. But if you don't, I'll just take the land and we'll call it even. And so what could happen is the governor could amass large estates without actually lending any money because he's not actually loaning them anything. He's just not sending it to Artaxerxes. And so he's able over time, if he wanted to, to amass just a huge estate, massive holdings in real estate. But he says, we we didn't do that. Which is important because the problem that they had addressed just before was the nobles and officials doing these same practices to their people. Of loaning them money at high interest and they they couldn't return the money, either taking their children as slaves or taking their land as property. He says, you can't do that. He said, we didn't worry ourselves with buying land. It's not that real estate investing is bad. It's that he's saying, that's not what we were here to do. And we weren't here to make money at the expense of the, of the people. And then he tells us that he provided for over 150 people each day. So not only did he not take the food allowance, he continued his duties. He fed over 150 people. He tells us he, he fed those from within the kingdom as well. So there were people regularly within the kingdom who were able to come and receive food at no cost from Nehemiah's hand in addition to his required duties that he paid for himself. Nehemiah demonstrates a different approach to leadership. Different than what we had seen previously in chapter 5 from the, the nobles and officials and the wealthy there in Jerusalem and far different from the previous governors that people had had who had placed a heavy burden on them. Nehemiah's desire was not to burden them any further than the work that they were laboring in. And so he said that was a heavy burden and it was too much for them. So this is what I did. This is how I led for the 12 years. That's important for us to step back and and learn a little bit here from Nehemiah. You see, because it is easy for me to say, let's sacrifice for one another. Let's care for one another. Let's put the other first. But to the tune of 20 million, that's hard for me. When it's a small thing, like, hey, you know, we're going to pick up a rotisserie chicken and drop it off at somebody's house to help them out, I'm down. But Nehemiah takes this to such an extreme. We don't know where the money come from. We have no indication of, of where his wealth was rooted and whether or not he was getting money from the king, how long he had saved for any of this. But regardless of, of any of that backstory, we know that shelling out 20 mil over 12 years is a significant expense for almost anyone. I mean, I think like Warren Buffett, he, he could get by with that and not really notice it. But the rest of us, that's real money. So there's a a real sacrifice for them. Now, Now here's the reality, is that Nehemiah could have claimed those benefits, and it would have been legal. It would have been expected, and it would have been normal. For Nehemiah to say, look, there's the the food allowance for the governor, and this is a reasonable allowance, and it's your job as the people to provide that, and so I'm going to claim it, would not have necessarily been wrong. It wasn't a sin to take a food allowance for the governor. The kings had it. The Bible never indicates that that would have been a, a, a sin. For him to have taxed the people would not have been wrong. You're not going to find a verse in the Bible that says officials can't tax the people. Now, you could be extreme, you could be a difficult and hard king, but normal in, in the governor of an area is that there's taxation, that it goes to the governor or to the king. That's normal. The Bible doesn't say that's wrong. Yet, Nehemiah says, I'm, I'm not going to take it. 
See, Nehemiah, honestly, he had every right to claim those benefits. And yet he chose not to. This is where Nehemiah gets very strange for us as Americans. Because let's be honest that this country was founded on the concept that we have certain inalienable rights. And if you mess with us, we will get our guns and make sure that you give us our rights. Especially in Texas. Don't tread on me. You see, we are a culture founded on claiming our rights by force if necessary. And here Nehemiah has the right to something and he willfully sets it aside for the good of someone else. Do you see the drastic difference with our culture? Now we invent our own human rights these days, it's ridiculous. And then we, we get you know uh, TV cameras and follow us around while we tell people that our rights are being violated. And, and my basic question is, well, who endowed you with this right? Right, Because the, the, the root of the whole thing throughout the discussion of civil and human rights is that men and women are endowed by whom? Their creator. So we have this neat thing where not only uh, do, do if you tread on us, if you take our rights from us, we'll be angry, but we'll invent new rights. And if you take that from us that, that we've created in our own hearts, we'll be angry as well. And yet Nehemiah looks squarely at what he's capable of doing, what would have been reasonable and expected, what would have been treated as normal, and says, I'm going to pass on that. At great expense to myself, I will lay down my rights for the good of the people. And so we find a, an interesting perspective on leadership with Nehemiah. But he's not concerned with his own good. He's concerned with the good of those underneath him. He's not concerned with his own rights, but with the benefits of the people. And he willfully sets them down. Now, this isn't a unique thing in the Scriptures. He's not the only person to have ever led this way. If you go to 2 Thessalonians with me, you'll see the Apostle Paul has a very similar approach to how he leads and does ministry. In chapter 3, verse 7, he tells them, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone will not work, let him not eat. So I want you to see what, what Paul did. Paul's traveling around, he's planting churches, he's preaching the gospel, then he leads a church for a while, and he says, look, the whole time we were with you there in Thessalonica, we didn't ask you to support us. We funded our own lives, we took care of things, even though we were there to serve you. He says, now, it's not that we didn't have a right to it. He said it would have been reasonable for the people to come alongside Paul and the men serving alongside him and to have supported them and to make sure they had daily provisions and places to stay. That would have been a reasonable thing to do, would not have been out of line for Paul to ask for it. He said, but even though we had a right to it, we didn't want to place this burden on you. And so we set aside our rights. We sacrificed for you. Jesus leads this way as well. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort 
in love and any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, which the assumption is and there is, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Having this in mind, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's what he tells us. He begins by a word to the church where where Paul says, Look, think about others as more important than you. Lay down what you have rightful claim to in order to care for them, in order to minister to them, in order to serve them. So love each other more than you love yourselves. And, and here's why you do that. Look, look at what Jesus did. And he talks about Jesus being humble and obedient in two relationships. He talks about his relationship to the Father. At, at the core of Christian theology is the understanding of the Trinity, that there is one God in three persons, that these three have eternally existed, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are equal of our praise and adoration and worship. And yet being in equality, in essence, with the Father, He submits to the will of the Father. He's humble, even though He is God. And He comes in the likeness of humanity. So He's submissive in His relationship to the Father, even though equality is present in their substance. They're both God. The God, the Father, God, the Son. They are persons within the one God, and they're equal and worthy. And yet the Son, Jesus says, I'll go take on human form. So there's equality, but He defers to the will of the Father. And then He comes. And His obedience continues even to death on a cross. I want you to think about this. That Jesus endures crucifixion from the hands of sinful men whom He will die to redeem at His own choice. He could have taken Himself off the cross. He could have called down legions of angels to destroy the Roman army. And yet, He endures this patiently for their redemption. That the great King of Heaven submits to crucifixion at the hands of sinful men. He says, that sort of humility, that sort of love for one another should be present within the church. That's what... Paul's getting at. And so in the ministry of Paul, in the ministry of Jesus, in the leadership of Nehemiah, we find this principle of laying down our rights and demands, even when they're acceptable, even when no one would look wildly at them to care for someone else. That's what Jesus is asking of us. As an aside, you guys that have a background in church, you grew up in church, you've been around it, um, those of y'all that have been that experience, How many churches have you just seen implode because no one could practice this principle? Because no one could look beyond their own preferences in a given situation. To say, what what is best in order to reach the community? What can we do? Instead, it's this is what I want. This is what I want. 
And that, I don't like this, and I don't like that, but I like this, and I like that. And, and let's be honest, when we're choosing where we're going to go to church, how many of us walk around and go, do they do what I want? Or do we walk in and say, can I serve these people? Can I have an impact here? Can I advance the kingdom here? See, we are so conditioned by our culture, whether it's this kind of baseline, give me my rights, don't tread on me, or, or it's this other thing, this consumerism that says, meet my every whim, that we approach worship and we approach church in such a way that, that it's about us entirely. And if we're not careful, you will see movements and churches that were healthy and reaching people completely evaporate within a generation when that happens. Or maybe they'll be present and completely harmful for the sake of the kingdom. And if you're from the other side of things and you don't have this kind of church background, you're like, I've never seen any of that. I guarantee what you have interacted with is people who've said, I used to be a part of church, but they're all hypocrites there. And I will go out on a limb and say, in most cases, there's one of two sources behind that comment. Either someone has, honestly, there's some sin in their lives they don't want to deal with, and so they're, they're looking for an out. That's highly likely. But what you also see is people that, that have seen the fallout in the church. They don't know what it's about. They've never been a part of the church, but they've seen the fallout. Yeah, my parents used to go, and then they got in this group, and then this happened, and that happened, and this happened. And the root of it is this pride that says, I want what I want. Give me what I want. Serve me. Serve my family. And if you don't, we'll go somewhere else, or we'll make life miserable for you. And that can happen anywhere. And each of us needs to consistently guard our own hearts from that tendency because it's present for all of us, me included. So he's calling us to something bigger. Now, here's what I begin to wrestle with. Like, why does someone sacrifice that much? Certainly whatever any of us would have reasonably expected of Nehemiah, 20 million is more than that. What's his motivation here? He gives us a few clues to it in the text, if you go back to Nehemiah 5. In verse 15 at the end, he says, I didn't do that. I didn't do so because of the fear of God. Nehemiah says, I did not overburden the people with taxes and demands because I feared God. Now, I want you to think about this. Let's, let's retrace a little bit of ancient history here. The people of Israel and Judah sinned and the nations came in and took over them. The Babylonians took over the, the southern kingdom of Judah and they disgraced the temple and just did ridiculous things. And you know what happened to the great empire of Babylon? Persia conquered them and overtook them in a night. One night. Nehemiah has seen what happens when people mistreat and mock the people of God. And he says, I don't want any part of that. And, and this is something we don't really talk about a lot in the church these days, is the fear of God. And I don't know if we realize that, that, that God at any moment could, could cease our lives without any effort. That God has at His disposal all power and authority beyond what we could imagine. 
That he demands reverence and awe and respect. He says, I fear God. And because I fear God, because I revere Him and respect Him, and because I tremble at His presence, I know that that mistreating His people is not acceptable. Uh, give you an example. If you were to go into an art gallery, which isn't really my scene, some of y'all may be down with that, but if you go into an art gallery, I know a little bit. One is that you wear all black, um, skinny jeans, and uh, you... <laughs> You stand by the picture and you go, hmm. You don't make much, you don't say much. And you just kind of stroll to the next one and you go, hmm. But what you absolutely don't do is get all the saliva you possibly can and spit on the picture. You don't do that. Because if you do, the guy with the beret who looks like a pacifist, all of a sudden is a mixed martial arts genius and he's coming after you. Why? Because you have looked at his masterpiece and you've discredited it, you've defamed it, you've attempted to destroy it, and now he is angry. And when God creates man and woman, He places His image upon us. And when He calls the people to Himself and says, they are mine, to mistreat and harm and abuse them is an offense to His masterpiece. If you read Genesis 6, you're going to find that God looks at them and the people are violent and vicious towards one another. And so what does God do? Let's flood it and start over. God does not tolerate mistreatment of His masterpieces. And so a fear of God, a recognition of who He is, drives Nehemiah to treat other people well. To treat them better than himself. Because he's seen what God can do to nations who despise his people. He gives us his second motivation here. Which honestly is a little more problematic for many people. In verse 19, he asks God for something. He's been talking about what he's done and then he turns and it's almost like this little one-line prayer where he says, Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't generally pray before God where I'm going, God, you you see what I've done? Put that in my book. Because if God were to tally the whole thing, I'm in real trouble. But I want you to see what Nehemiah has done. Some people are critical of his approach here, saying, well, why would Nehemiah boast about what he's done before the Lord? That's, That's nothing. But here's what Nehemiah is saying. He's asking God, he says, remember for my good what I've done to these people. He's not saying I've never done anything bad. He's asking God to remember him for his good, not to forget him, because he's tried to love these people out of a fear for the Lord. You know, when we think about it, God has actually commanded us to pursue him and to honor him because he will bless us. If you go to Deuteronomy 28, kind of the foundation to the Jewish people in the law of Moses in chapter 28 and 29, he lays down what he calls blessings and curses. If you follow the covenant, if you do what I tell you, this is what's going to happen. If you break it, look out and get a hard hat. But look at verse, uh, chapter 28, verse 1. He says, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, your God, 
Being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. I love that. Blessings will overtake you. Like, I've never used that phrase before. Like, you're going to be conquered by blessings. That's what he tells him. He says, blessings will overtake you. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, and the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. So, I want to be clear on something. This is a promise to the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, related to following the covenant of God. And he establishes them as, as a nation. He says, look, if you will just follow me, if you'll be faithful to me, I will bless you beyond what you could imagine. And for them, I want to be clear that generally speaking, that blessing is material. He is saying to the people of Israel, as a nation, if you'll be faithful to me, this nation will prosper. Now, we operate under different promises. We're not the people of Israel. We're not this nation. And we relate to God under this new covenant and that not our promise. We have promises of our own. And those promises ultimately come in eternity when we're with the Lord, when all of sin has been eradicated. So God hasn't promised or guaranteed us that if we're good, we get material blessings. But He has promised to bless us for faithfully pursuing Him. And I want to draw some distinctions between what the world sees with this and how some people preach this and what the Bible's saying. So people look at this and it's kind of a give-to-get scheme. That... That if I give a certain amount of money, then I'm going to get 10% back. That's a really good trick for preachers to get everyone to tithe. Now, the problem with the math is that you want to be on the giving end of it. So if I'm the preacher, I don't want you giving me the money if there's a 10% return, right? I want to give you the money and get my 10 time back. That's how it works. But for some reason, they never preach it that direction. It's always flowing this way. And so it's not a give-to-get thing. You don't twist God's arm saying, God, I did this, you owe me this. That's, that's not how it works. What he does say is, if you will faithfully pursue God, if you'll seek Him, if you'll follow Him, trusting that He is better than anything, He'll bless you. He'll demonstrate that He, in fact, is the greatest treasure. This isn't a unique principle in the Scriptures. If you go to Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says basically the same thing in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So people are, he's saying, don't worry about everything you're going to have. Don't worry about all your material possessions. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to seek God. I want you to pursue righteousness. I want you to walk faithfully with God and let Him handle everything else. This other stuff will be taken care of. You just pursue Him. Be faithful. Walk uprightly before your God. Hebrews 11 shakes me a little bit along this tendency. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, you'll find what's quite interesting. He says, without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. I want you to think about this. You cannot please God if you do not come to Him seeking blessing. That's what Hebrews 11 says. says, You must believe that He is, that He exists, and that He blesses those who seek Him if you want to please Him. Now, the Bible is going to define blessing for us differently than the world does. But He's going to say, if you don't come to God 
believing that He is your greatest good, that He is the highest treasure in all of the world, you don't please Him. Because if you come to God believing He's going to give you a Bentley, you're not coming to God for God. You're coming to God for a Bentley, and He's a tool to get it. That's not what the Lord wants. He's not saying, if you want material stuff, you come to me because I can dole it out. What he's saying is, you come to me because I am the greatest treasure. That's why in Matthew 13, Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a a man who finds a treasure hidden in his field. And in his joy, he goes and sells everything to buy it. That the kingdom itself, that the very person of God is this immense treasure that is worthy of selling everything to have. And the man does it in all his joy. So when we pursue God, we pursue Him believing that He is powerful and able to do beyond what we could ask or imagine. And then we trust Him to do it. And it may not look like the blessings this world pursues. It may not look like big houses and nice jewelry and cool cars. It might look like something far more simple. But there is something greater on the other side of this at the return of Christ. The promise later in 2 Timothy is that we will reign with Him. And we have this weird mix where this causes us to look forward in in what John Piper calls this future grace that we've yet to receive that God has stored up for us. That if we'll walk faithfully with Him, we'll receive in due time. And that draws us, that should motivate us, Hebrews 11 says, to pursue Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when it speaks of the communion table, it's, it's so interesting because it draws us backward and forward. In 1 Corinthians 11, he tells us that we are to do this in remembrance of Christ. That that we're to remember that His body was broken for our sin. That He was beaten and torn and abused. And that His blood was shed for our cleansing. The Scriptures are clear on that. We're to remember that that happened. But it's not just about doing that. Because then 1 Corinthians says that every time you eat, of this bread and you drink of this cup, you do something. You proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And so this faithful observance, this remembrance of what Christ has done, is yes, it's driven by gratitude as we look backwards, but just as much, it's driven by hope of the good things that God has promised that we've yet to receive. And we proclaim that this God is able to do what He has promised when we gather at this table. Because He's proven His kind intention towards us. And that backward look at the cross and what Jesus did for us there, that this table requires, gives us the faith to look forward and walk with Him and trust Him. This isn't just about remembering. This is about believing for today and tomorrow. And that's what drives Nehemiah to sacrifice is He knows who God is, He fears the Lord, and He believes that God blesses those who seek Him, who walk faithfully with Him. And that's what this table reminds us of. I want to ask the men that are going to help with the Lord's table to come forward this morning.